Welcome to the B2B Mix Show with Elena and Stacy. In each episode, we'll bring you ideas that you can implement in your sales and marketing strategy. We'll share what we know along with advice from industry experts who will join us on the show. Are you ready to mix it up? Let's get started. Hello, Elena. Hello, Stacy. How are you today, my friend? I'm just dandy and you. Great. I'm hot. We're in Florida, so it's it's hot. Yeah, it's hot. My face seems like it's red, even though we're in air conditioning. <laughs> so it is hot. But you know what else is hot? This topic. And I don't mean the store. Why don't you tell our listeners what this topic is, lady? So today we're going to be talking about how to attribute your content to revenue, which is something that everybody's always trying to do, right? Uh, especially especially marketers. You want to prove that the hard work that you're doing is you know, resulting in some good leads and some sales. Today's guest has tips to help marketers who want to learn more about how their content is contributing to revenue and sales. Lena, would you like to introduce our panelists today? Stefan Hedebrandt is the Chief Marketing Officer at Dream Data, and that is a revenue attribution platform and it collects joins and cleans all data to give you an insightful value to your business and stefan is a subject matter expert in connecting marketing activities with revenue which is what we're going to be talking about today and he has an exceptional growth mindset he's data driven by heart and loves all the parts of scaling the commercial side of business and he is a notorious growth hacker with a successful track record of scaling businesses and building teams at upwork and airtame Stefan knows the pain points of rapidly scaling marketing and growth firsthand. So we are excited to have him on today to talk about how to attribute your content to revenue. Thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Uh, Before we get started, could you tell us a little bit more about Dream Data and what your company does? Yes, happy to, Stacey, and uh, yeah, thanks for, for, for letting me join your show. Um, so DreamData is basically a B2B go-to-market uh, data platform. And what that means is that we, we're kind of a data warehouse where you can connect all the tools you use uh, in going to market, speaking to your customers, etc., and put that into our bucket. And then our algorithms clean up all this data and leave you with a, uh, a holistic account-based uh, data model, which is a, a fine word for saying it's a timeline of every single touch that you have with uh, an account, all the way from the first touch until you see that you win a, de- a deal. Um, and then what we, you know, what what takes place is that you know we extract all the data from the CRM system, from the marketing automation system, etc. And then let's say Stacy exists in four or five different systems. Then we deduplicate that and then make sure that the system can see it's just one Stacy, but she's just appearing doing different stuff in in, in different tools. Does it act and, alone? Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Does it act alone, or does it work with like? HubSpots and Salesforce and things like that. Yes, so it's uh, we. So we're in. I don't know how technical your 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 listeners are, but like I think the technical term would be that we are a first-party data processor. So that means that we work with the data that the, the company can give us. 
So mm-hmm. that's typically their CRM hotspot. Uh, okay. Some kind of marketing automation tool, their ad platforms, the traffic on their website, and so mm-hmm. forth. So they give us all the data that they have collected themselves, and then we just process for them and and build this account based timeline uh, of every account. So it, it kind of cleans the data, like you said. So yeah, what exactly. you're getting um, is good data. It's not crap. No, for exactly. Like a better word. <laughs> yeah, we can make, make uh, just touch why it's kind of in it. Why this is nice. So. B2B companies, uh, you guys know this, they typically they buy m- more as a team than as an individual. Mm-hmm. And that means that, you know, three or five people are involved in, in the buyer's journey. The journey might take you six months and have 30 sessions or something like that. And in this scenario where let's just say there's three people involved in a deal, then quite typically you'd see that the marketing activity starts the journey but then that journey might end with that person and then another person kind of takes the torch and carries it on. And then those two people have a boss that signs the contract. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's fine that you sell something, but it's a problem that you can actually not join that timeline because then the money you spent uh, starting the journey is not connected to the revenue that you produce from winning the deal. Mm-hmm. So then that makes it very hard to... Uh, decide which activities you should do more of and which activities you should uh, do less of. Right. Which really leads us into what we're talking about today, how content impacts revenue and how you can attribute those two things together. So everyone wants to know if the content that they're making is worth it, if it's doing anything, if it if it's impacting sales and and your bottom line. But, you know, before we get into all that, Maybe we need to take a step back and talk about how content, how your content strategy. So what do yeah. marketers need to know about developing that revenue-focused content strategy for B2B? Ooh, good question. So I'll tell you how we, guy, we, we think about it. Uh, or, mm-hmm. So we're just, uh, our company is just about like three to four years old now. And mm-hmm. the first few years we have had let initially let the content production be guided by uh, the sales team very much because the questions that those guys hear repeatedly are stuff that we should definitely address with uh, content because uh, salespeople, they do the one-on-one communication. And that's the good thing about marketing is that you can then take a one-to-many approach. So if the one-to-one consistently asks similar things, then you can go out and produce like a, a really well-written answer to a tough question. Right. So the salesperson don't have, uh, doesn't have to, you know, in depth be able to answer really, for example, really technical stuff or, you know, a marketing topic that they're not a master of that, that we can deal with in marketing. So the first long period, we just let the salespeople tell us, what are people asking? <laughs> Don't trying to kind of invent the wheel, but let's just listen to what, what we're being asked. And this is really how I see uh, companies should think about their website. It should be like an, a library to any given question that you might ask about your company. Because I, I, I think nowadays people don't want to speak to salespeople before, like they've almost made the decision about buying. So you need to think about 
making sure that your website exhausts all questions you might have related to right. to your product. So that, that was a long, <laughs> like a warm up uh, to, the end, <laughs> to, the, to the answer. But which I'm is not true even though, <laughs> it, which is true though, because a lot of times when the sales and marketing teams aren't speaking you're missing out on those wonderful opportunities that the sales mm-hmm. team is getting. They're getting all these questions and maybe your content isn't even answering that question. So maybe you're too focused on hitting a keyword for SEO yeah. or something like that. So that's a really good yes. point. Then mistakes I've made myself in the past has really been to, you know, I don't know, I don't know how familiar we are with like search engines, but you can, there's these search engine tools where you can look up how much traffic is there on a particular keyword. And earlier in my career, I was very focused on finding a somewhat relevant keyword, but that had a large volume. And then I tried to get that traffic into the website. But, you know, it turns out that it's much better to focus your attention on the high intent searches. Right. Like, for an example, it could be a B2B attribution software. If somebody wrote that, then we would love to have them on our website. If somebody just searched for attribution, the intention behind that search would be very weak. Uh, so would definitely not, nowadays, I wouldn't uh, spend time on, on doing so. But I think this, this we can kind of, there's, you know, one million opinions about content, but I think we can split, if you split the discipline up into to two buckets, so there's one you do for the search engines where you try to rank on certain searches in the search engine and then pull people to your website. The other type of content is uh, like an, another way to, of analyzing it is to look at what are the pages on your website that people look at as they're going through a buying process. And this is some of what we can do with uh, uh, with Dream Data as well. So we have a tracking script, and this tracking script records every single session by every user and every URL that this user watches. And that we have aggregated uh, across the whole account. And if you aggregate that up to when all the deals you've won, you'll start to see certain URLs are present when people become closed one in your CRM system. So what, for example, we have, uh, I have found out, uh, which is, there's three or four URLs that I can anecdote here, but one, the integrations page, people always look at before they, if, if they buy. We also have a, uh, we have a community page, which is basically just a link to our Slack channel. That's always present, also, also present. Our about page, which we never ever spend any significant time on, is also viewed quite often before people buy. So there's these pages you check when you want to like be sure you can trust the company that will never ever pull you any traffic from the search engines, but it's still an important asset that re- really needs to be trustworthy and nice when a customer is, uh, is considering whether they should buy your product. Mm-hmm. And then the last, the last funny one was that we we could see that our four hundred four page, you know, the error page. <laughs> if people manage to find this on our website, that actually also typically correlates with uh, them being close to actually buying. <laughs> Which, really? Yeah, <laughs> and I think it, I think it is an expression that they're really going deep around the website to right. read every single bit, and then if they can find something, then. If that is present, then they might be actually interested in buying. That's funny. I guess that does make a sort of sense, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We were quite surprised. So do you have a trigger 
Do you have a trigger warning when someone hits that four or four page? You're like, okay, let's get ready. It's coming. <laughs> it, exactly. Like if we were to, if we were to build like a lead scoring model, that would probably have to be present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does this kind of thinking make sense, guys? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I know a lot of people think in terms of ABM these days, but it sounds like even if you don't have an ABM formal model that you should consider some of the things that uh, people who have a, a formal ABM plan are like defining your ICPs, your ideal customer profiles and thinking about intent. Are there any other things that people should maybe adopt that ABM mindset as far as their strategy for content goes? Hmm. Good question. So if, if like, obviously you will have to define what we mean by ABM as well, but if we think about it as we're, as we're selling to an account, a company, then I think I would start looking at for our product, um, who's typically part of the decision-making process. Um, for example, when we sell a dream that there's typically three to four people involved in the deal. And you need to kind of make sure that you have actually, you've just not made content for just one of these f- people. So if the, you know, if there's a CFO, a, a security officer, a marketer and a salesperson involved, then you need answers to all four of these people and not just, you know, the marketer or the salesperson. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good point because too often we think about just that one decision maker and not all the influencers that we need to be creating content yeah exactly and it uh, you know maybe maybe the influencers are not the ones that are starting the journey so you should only maybe only spend 10 20 percent of your time on these because you want to be mm-hmm. pulling in like traffic from the social media and the search engines towards which let's say it's the marketers and the salespeople. But they still need some URLs when they <laughs> that they can send internally to their team because, you know, when you, it's popular to talk about when you find your champion for buying your product, this champion still needs to go uh, go to market inside the company to make sure I get the budget, I get the approval on the security part, right. etc. Um, and if you don't have that supporting content, yeah, because there's a whole lot of people involved in that whole decision it's not like exactly obviously like you might be dealing with some might be dealing with micro businesses where it's kind of the guy that starts the guy or girl that starts the journey is also the guy that has to do the security check and can sign the contract and then it's a little bit different flavor (laughs) well once you've established your um strategy for b2b marketing and uh the content revenue focus what's the next step that marketers need to do in it attributing content to revenue what what do they need to think about in terms of their data and systems what are some pointers for them yeah so where to start so i think one thing is that you if you want to you know do these kinds of analysis you need first of all you need to wire your organization to actually make sure that your actions leave digital traces because if no kind of if there's no sign of what was the activity that took place then you can't and what i'm trying to say here is that you have to go through kind of all your go-to-market teams activity so if you do your customer success work from like a gmail inbox 
it probably doesn't leave a lot of traces about who, who did what. If your sales team is just picking up their right. own phone and calling the customers, then that doesn't leave a lot of traces of what actually took place. So they could, for example, be using our calling software instead. Um, the same with the activity on your website. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you haven't installed any kind of tracking script on the website, you, you're not actually able to understand. Like I spent this money, or we did these activities, and now people came to our website and booked demos or something like that. So, so step one is definitely like going through, kind of think about the customer journey. Where do we meet our customers and speak to them, and make sure that we have actually set it up in a way that that generates data because if, like if we don't have that then we can't start to extract knowledge out of uh, or out of it otherwise you're just kind of making it up yeah you're just kind of you don't have anything to go on no solid <laughs> yeah. evidence of anything and then you could then go on to talk about uh, the best thing you can do is if you is if you directly can connect your content to uh, to revenue, but that's typically a harder discipline in in B two B because we're talking about these longer journeys with more stakeholders etc. involved. So you might want to think about what could be a good uh, proxy metric, a good proxy conversion for uh, revenue. Mm-hmm. That could be your, we know that one out of a hundred who signs up to the newsletter ends up buying, buying. So you could be tracking how many emails does our content generate. Maybe a step further towards the money could be a demo call, uh, which you might want to be tracking. Here it's maybe one out of 50 who ends up buying. And then could you even take it longer to a demo call? And then a second meeting started by a certain piece of content. Um, so that's kind of one way to go about it. The way we do it in um, in Dream Data is that we have a, like, it's a fairly advanced platform. So you get a tracking script from us. This tracking script stores uh, inside a data warehouse every URL that every user looked at. And then we join that together with the CRM system where we can see what are the accounts. And if we sold to them, we can also get the money component uh, and then say, okay, this account started the journey from this URL and ended up buying. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's maybe that may one of the big differences between B2C and B2B is that in B2C, you know, if it's a, a web shop, somebody comes to the website and they buy. Mm-hmm. Then it's pretty easy to see right. in Shopify, they landed on this page. But in B2B, it's kind of a... It's a lot longer process, yeah. It's kind of a... It's a, it's a much... It's a mess. <laughs> it's very common. And a lot of times, you know, the whole process of they'll see something on social, maybe they saw it and then they come back later. So it's... There's a lot yeah. of different pieces to it, which that can happen in B2C too, but probably not as often as... Because in B2C, you're going to say, oh yeah, I want that and go ahead. But it's a longer yeah. process and thought process in B2B. Yeah, we actually, we, we put out some benchmarks earlier this year where we, uh, we could see for an, a couple, we analyzed around a 500 accounts and their average journey had 32 uh, sessions recorded uh, before a deal happened. So this, and this is like recorded session. And, but on top of this, you also have all the views on LinkedIn and right. Facebook, et cetera, where they might not have clicked through to your website. So, so 
so B2B is just, uh, as you say, uh, it's, it's super much a multi-touch, uh, you know, uh, game where you need... Yeah, 32 is a lot. And that's the average. So some is higher, some is lower. But yeah, I think to me, it just means that you need to be super productive. You need to put out a lot of good content all the time. <laughs> so in yeah. order to just keep moving them, these small steps forward... Right. So I know that one of the things that was mentioned is putting your metrics into two different models. So like an attribution model and revenue model. Can you kind of talk through that? Yeah. Okay. So if we go back to what I said um, initially about getting every touch of an account into a timeline, then uh, we we have something we call, uh, it's basically a stage model. So you can say, from first touch to MQL, that could be one stage. From first touch to SQL, that could be another stage. And from first touch to one could be a third stage. So depending on which stage you say, I want to understand and analyze, after that, you then apply an attribution model. So it could be from first touch to becoming a marketing qualified lead. Then let's... <laughs> That's I'm trying to like explain and not make it too complex, but let's say there's a, the full journey is 10 touches. Then from first touch to MQL might only be three touches. So if you apply a last touch model to, to this, that means that the last touch will be the last touch before they became an MQL and not the last touch before they bought. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the stage model basically sets at which stage of the journey are we analyzing? And then you have a certain amount of sessions there. And then the attribution model applies only to the selected time period. The, you can say the reason why this is nice to do is because, you know, if the average B2B journey is six months, we can't just as marketers, uh, you know, do an activity and then sit back and wait for six months to see whether it worked or not. Right. Right. Because then <laughs> wanna, you don't know yeah, what you need yeah. to be working on next. You know? Yeah. You, you want to have something that is like where you can easily uh, connect. This is what the actions I did. And now we reached MQL stage. We right. might only take like 14 days to get there. Mm -hmm. And then you can loop back and say, okay, did it work? Did it not work? What can we do more of? Mm -hmm. So I th we've hinted at what several of the benefits are if we take this revenue focused content approach, but maybe we can just really dig into those, uh, obviously help you justify where you spend your time and money, but maybe you can give us some more in-depth um, meat around that topic. Yeah. So I, I, like, I can just anecdote and one of my own experiences uh, at my last uh, company, uh, we had been very heavily driven by paid ads initially. And then from one year to the next, I decided now it's the time to, you know, ramp up our content production as well. So I went out and hired a, a videographer, a designer, a writer, and a manager for that team. So then suddenly I had a headcount of, uh, of four people just doing content. And things started out nicely that you could like, you know, you could see in Google Analytics, Google Analytics that more people would be arriving from organic search in Google to our website. That's fine. <laughs> That's, you know, at least a sign that something is happening. But inside of Google Analytics, as a B2B company, you don't, you don't get to see any kind of revenue component. There's no kind of money in there in a, as a B2B company because the money sits in the CRM system. 
And then when the CEO comes asking to me whether, like, Stefan, was this a good idea that we hired these four people to produce content? <laughs> then I, you know, back then I would be stuck with answering, hmm, you know, we get more organic traffic. <laughs> well, okay, I can't pay any salary with more organic right. traffic. So. <laughs> did it did it produce any <laughs> revenue? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the problem is that of the content typically would start journeys or be in the earlier part of the journey, which then would be taken on by the salespeople afterwards. And then I couldn't connect the dots from the activity of the content with the revenue. And then that makes it a massive problem to defend a headcount. Mm -hmm. So that's why you need to establish... And this, I think this is the marketer's responsibility to, you know, educate the people you work together with. Why are we doing these things? Why, it's, why is it valuable? Okay, we cannot prove that we directly generate money, but maybe I can prove that we, we generate demo calls and like we win one out of five demo calls. So it makes sense for us to con continue with producing this content. Yes, I, I think that's definitely something that most marketers want to know. And it also helps you defend what you're doing to the sales team who says, you're not bringing in any leads. Well, yeah, we did influence these. Yeah, and then, <laughs> or it also teaches you a lesson if you're not helping. And then all journeys are not equal. So maybe you have certain pieces of content that consistently sets up nice leads for the salespeople, whereas like... Mm -hmm. So you just produce funny cat videos <laughs> that might produce a lot of, uh, <laughs> you might be able to generate a lot of emails from that because the cats are cute, but it's probably not going to be your, your next customer coming out of that type of content. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so can you share some use cases of how Dream Data's content analytics product and how it, how you can make the most of your content data with it? Yes. So if we go back to what I said like earlier, um, we can help show which pieces of content generate sales pipeline and what pieces of content generate deals. And quite typically, it's not necessarily the pieces of content that has the highest search volumes that actually do this. Which then you, if you end up spending your resources on just generating traffic to your website that never ever becomes sales pipeline and revenue, then like, like roughly speaking, then you're just wasting your company's time and money because we should be doing our marketing activities to uh, produce revenue. Then now that you know which pieces of content uh, generates the sales pipeline and revenue, then you can think about which content should I be producing more of in the future. But it could also be that you find out that this piece of content actually doesn't rank too well in Google, though it has produced revenue. So let's mm -hmm. try and do some of that stuff that can move some content up in the search engines, like link, build, right. link building, making the website faster, um, etc. I have a quick question. Do you know, based on like the research that you've done, I think you said you looked at 500 companies. Um, do you know if if any of that shows like the type of content that maybe people makes turns someone into a customer? Does it like or is it typically blogs? Is it an ebook or um, a webinar podcast? Did you did you come across any of that in mm. the data that you researched, or did you not go to that? that kind of angle 
That's actually a really good. Uh, so <laughs> that's good topic for a, a new like a uh, benchmark study. So this one we did recently was about uh, the customer journey, uh, and we just also put out some uh, some benchmarks on, for example, CPM prices for ads right now, which is just completely mm-hmm. falling through the floor at the moment. So it, it would actually be fun to look at, like across all the accounts, uh, which mm-hmm. types of content is better. Like, is it the webinar? Is it the ebook, etc.? We haven't done that, but uh, like one uh, one method that I consistently see working uh, uh, is, and this is just for your listeners, that the alternative articles to established mm-hmm. brands in your industry. <laughs> always seems to be working mm-hmm. quite well so that is um, let's say you're in uh, in the customer success software industry then it, I know Sendesk has, has done a lot to defend uh, against this but then you would take brand name Sendesk and then write an alternative to that because then people who are searching for an established brand but right. an alternative to it they understand mm-hmm. what they're looking for mm-hmm. but Cheaper. They're probably yeah, looking that was for my first something thing. <laughs> cheaper or a little bit uh, different. Yeah. So if so, think about as a listener, uh, who are kind of the established brands in our industry? And then you can produce an article that can kind of be a ticket in the lottery mm-hmm. for people searching for alternatives. Yeah. To and like comparisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing you should, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Comparisons. But one thing, at least in, in Danish law, and I think in a lot of uh, commercial law, it needs to be something that is objectively true, what you put there. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you can maybe yeah. risk. <laughs> yeah. I have received letters from lawyers. Yeah, saying, have integrity about how you're doing yeah. it and don't <laughs> just bash them and talk horrible about them but you know just put the facts out there and just talk about here's you can do it pretty yeah. like just stylish just writing stuff that are that is kind of objectively true mm-hmm. comparisons and you also at the end of the day you don't want to talk somebody into buying your product who's not yeah. going to be a happy customer mm-hmm. you know what's yeah. funny on that topic i think it was survey monkey but they use that again for their own benefit they bid on alternative to survey monkey and their ad was there is no alternative to survey monkey so you could even use that to your own advantage <laughs> i think this, you can i don't know if it exists anymore but sendesk invented uh, a rock band called sendesk alternative oh. Uh, oh really they put out a music video and stuff like that too. oh that's awesome that was super funny i'll have to see look and see if i can yeah. find that so before we kind of wrap things up, are there any tips or details that you'd like to share with our listeners? So regarding this content, I would say that the most important thing is for me would be to like produce high quality stuff and think about going for the intention rather than the volume, because, you, you know, that's at the end of the day, we're trying to, at least I am trying to get new customers from, from producing content and I think also like the reason why I'm saying high quality is that like, you know, every interaction with your brand and company, you know, forms the opinion. So if you put out like low quality stuff, people might read it and then think mm, this is probably not like a trustworthy brand or they might tell their friends that I like, yeah. read this crappy article here. So 
be aware to, to produce a, like a content of a certain quality to, you know, because it represents your company out there. All right. Well, we usually ask one just for fun question before we let our guests go. So if you weren't chief marketing officer at Dream Data, what would your dream job be? I can tell you what I wanted to be as a child, and okay. I wanted to be like a, a football commentator. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because then I knew I could go and travel around the world to, to watch uh, all watch the games, soccer yeah. in the American. Yeah, and I remember like I thought that would be a good job uh, <laughs> if I could go to the games and watch the games all the so time. So maybe you should create some content for Dream Data, a video or something <laughs> where you're doing the commentating and like a football game. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm good at it or not, but uh, I would love to see the games. Yeah. <laughs> well, if people want to connect with you, how should they do that? It's, it's LinkedIn where I'm by far the most uh, active, so people can just connect and ask any question if they ha they have any after listening to this. Okay, perfect. So you should go and connect with Stefan on LinkedIn, and if you want to connect with me or Stacy, you can find us on Twitter. Stacy is Stacy underscore J A X. That's S A. Eh, I can't even spell her name. S T A C Y underscore J A X. <laughs> and I am Elena underscore Jax, A L A N N A underscore J A X. And you can also find us on LinkedIn, Elena Jackson or Stacey Jackson. See you next time. The B2B Mix Show is hosted by Stacey Jackson and Elena Jackson of, you guessed it, the B2B Mix Agency. If you need help with your B2B inbound marketing efforts, visit us at theb2bmix.com.